Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. I'm Adam. I'm the volunteer coordinator here at DHC. I am so excited that you are here as a part of this six-week talk, conversation, series, whatever you want to refer to it as, called Follow Me. Let me just give you a little disclaimer uh, first, because I didn't give the disclaimer at the first service until the end of the message, and so people you know, had never heard me speak before were really kind of shell-shocked. I got a lot more energy than the other guy does. Okay, so I mean, if you are, if you need to put a seatbelt on or whatever, just buckle up because I mean, I for whatever, I've had about four or five cups of coffee and I'm ready to go. So I just want to give everybody a little disclaimer. John, however, though, has been doing a phenomenal job up here. I love every single week getting up here uh, and watch, or getting to come in here and listen to the message. But we are right here in the middle of this conversation called "Follow Me," where we are taking a look at what it looks like to follow after Jesus in a different way. And we are taking a look at what he actually said that his followers should do, because a lot of times we have it wrong, right? We're not necessarily, we think we know what he said for his followers to do, but we want to kind of go back to the drawing board and take a look at what he actually says as it relates to following after him. And so last week, John put this scripture up on the screen and I loved it. It was from John chapter 17. And so I want to revisit it. It's Jesus kind of praying to God about what to do with his followers here on earth. And here's what it says. It says, I'm not asking you, right, God, to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do, right? And it goes on. It says, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will never or who will ever believe in me through their messages. Basically meaning this, right? He's basically saying, hey, listen, a lot of times people think that when you make a commitment to Jesus or you follow after Jesus, that you're just going to, you know, go to heaven and that's it. And, and we are promised eternal life in heaven someday. And we're kind of all trying to figure out what that means. But furthermore, we have a responsibility and a goal here on earth to influence the world for the cause of Jesus, to influence the world for the cause of Christ. And how are we going to do that, right? But before we dive in, I would like to just pause for a second and bring up what I would consider to be a large issue that we just need to talk about here as we begin this message. I would love to revisit a, a large issue that, that might even go on in this church that we need to sit down and have a conversation about before we begin this message so that we can kind of all be on the same page about this and we can set the barometer at a different level so we can talk. So just stay with me for a second because there's an issue that I need to bring forward to you before we can continue in this message. And here is the issue capital letters, okay? Let me, talk about when I, let, me, let me talk about what I mean when I say capital letters. So for, um, I don't know if some of you even know this because many of you are new around downtown Harbor Church and many of you are new to watching us online, but for a number of months, I was actually the lead communicator at DHC. So I kind of came up here for our first couple of years, week in, week out, and gave messages. And um, Anyway, throughout my tenure of doing that, right, I would put the text on the screen in capital letters, okay? Now, when our lead pastor, John, took over last August, he began to kind of write the messages and put some different text on the screens, and he began to use, right, a combination of capital letters and lowercase letters. And I said to John, I said, well, why are you doing that? And he said, well, because that's proper English grammar. Like, why would people capitalize everything? To which I said the following. Well, take, let me just show you what I said. Take a look at the screen real quick. Good idea. And one more thing. Do you think it would be an exclamation point? Because it's not top of the 
And so what my comment was, was John, because John said to me, he goes, well, why are you using all capital letters? You're not screaming at these people. And I'm like, no, no, I am, right? And so anyway, at the end of the day, I just, I'm bringing back the capital letters today. So I just wanted everybody to know, just buckle up because it's time, all right? So as we follow after Jesus, and those of us who are Christians in the room can hopefully have a different context and understanding for this, but there's something that's kind of inside of us, right? As we follow after Jesus, right, there's something inside of us where we want to bring others with us. And that's human nature. In fact, the scripture talks about that. That as we follow after Jesus and we found this amazing thing, right? Our life has been saved. We've been made right with the creator of the universe. Why wouldn't we want to bring others along with us on that journey? It's only human nature to do that. After all, it's kind of like when we find something really good on this earth that we're excited about and we just got to tell everybody about it. Like if you've been to an amazing new restaurant, right, in South Florida and you're, you're maybe it happens happy hour, you're maybe hanging out with some friends, and you're like, man, you got to try this place. This place is unbelievable, right? In fact, maybe it's like where you have a really good doctor, right? And you say, man, you got to go to my doctor. He's the best, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Like, not everyone is graduating at the top of these classes. Who's the worst doctor, okay? And and then it's like, oh, you got to go see him. He's the best. Oh, and then you go, and the doctor's like, oh, you know Tim. I'm going to give you the real pills, okay? But what I'm saying, here's just what I'm saying, right? At the end of the day, when there's something out there that we are excited about or engage with, we want to share it with someone. Following after Jesus is no exception. So here's the question. How do we do that? How do we actually help others to follow after Jesus based on our lead? How do we do that? It's not the easiest thing in the world because people kind of look at Jesus and look at Christianity and look at the local church and like, man, this is weird. This is awkward. I don't know how to engage here. How do you do that? And the truth is, the fact of the matter is, is it's a delicate art. It's a delicate art to do it. There's no exact science to get this done, but we are going to talk about today how Jesus, if we look deep enough, gives us a, gives us a decently clear understanding of how we could potentially get this done. And I'm going to take a different look at a message that maybe some of you, if you've been around the local church, you've heard a number of times. Maybe if you're, in fact, if you're new to the local church, maybe you've never heard this message before in your life, but we're going to talk about it today. See, last week, John kicked us off in the series, and I loved what he talked about because he talked about no condemnation of unbelievers, right? You know it's a John because it's a lowercase text, okay, whenever I'm referencing that. No condemnation of unbelievers, okay? And that's what John talked about, and I loved that because he talked about how, listen, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, then condemnation, absolutely not, right? And we do that. We get, we get out of line when we do that. And this week, we're going to take a look at something different, but let me set the scene. Because Jesus, throughout his life here on earth, kind of traveled around and had a ministry and talked with people and engaged with people of the time, healed people, um, even some he raised from the dead. But as we kind of look at the text here today, we're about to go into a moment where Jesus is challenged. And Jesus, in fact, is challenged by the religious institute of the time. They were always the people of the time who were trying to catch Jesus, who were kind of trying to trick him and trying to make sure that, you know, he was actually staying on point and was accurate, right? And didn't say something that crossed the law because then they could finally get rid of him like they wanted to. 
Jesus is challenged in this moment. In fact, if you have a scripture and you want to open it up, you're welcome to do that. We will be in the book of Luke chapter 10 um, today, verse 25. If you don't, no worries. You can follow along on any mobile device or, as always, it will be on our screen. And so let me just kind of set the stage for this, right? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as I was reviewing the message this week with John, we were kind of, our lead pastor, we were kind of going over stuff, and he goes, this doesn't look right. And I said, what doesn't look right? And he goes, well, you know, since I started writing the messages again, not only did I, you know, uh, include lowercase letters in the message, but I've also been using some colored text as I've spoken. I said, oh, really? Well, let me adjust this so that we can make sure it's absolutely up to the standards of the downtown Harbor Church. Thank you so much, okay? So, okay, thank you for the laughter. That's really exciting. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? I think this is so key, and I think this is such a unique question, because maybe some of us have even asked this question before. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Let me me kind of translate this question for you, which I love because it fits so clearly in our series. If this man were just asking a different version of this question, I just believe he would ask this, hey, Jesus, what must I do to follow after you, right? But there's a problem here, and here's the problem, right? The man challenging Jesus in this text, in this context, was not being sincere. He's a religious leader of the time where he's just kind of going, hey, Jesus, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Hey, Jesus, what? Okay, you are who you say that you are, okay? What do I need to do to follow after you? What do I need to do? How do I get this done? Knowing that this man knows and is a teacher and a scholar of the law, Jesus does what only he knows how to do and reaches right back into the culture of the time, reaches right back into the law, and he says this. Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus put it right back on the religious man, right back on the leader, right back on the scholar, and the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. Done. Bada bing, bada boom. The man answered correctly, right? The man actually answered correctly. And and if I can see this scene happening from afar, I almost envision like Jesus going, all right, yeah, you answered right. uh, You answered correctly. I'm done with you. Ending the interaction, right? Ending the interaction. In fact, I'm a visual thinker, so I don't know if you think visually as well, but I almost see this happening where Jesus is talking to this guy, and he actually almost turns around and says, have a good day, brother. See you soon. You know, we'll catch you over on Las Olas. Like, we'll we'll, see, okay? And then, right, Jesus starts walking away, but the scripture goes on, and I love this, right, because the religious leader's not done, that old snarky rascal, right? He goes on, and he says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, hey, I can see Jesus walking away at this point, going, hey, Jesus, thanks, but who's my neighbor? Who actually is this person that I'm supposed to love as myself? Who is my neighbor? You, you know, you, you put it back on me and I answered, I'm going to now try to one-up you. Who is my neighbor? And what I love about Jesus is in this moment, he gives us an example of how to do this in our lives. And many of us ignore the example here, by the way, because Jesus does something and I love what he does because in this moment, Jesus refuses to play intellectual games, right? He refuses to play intellectual games 
games to the point where he could have debated the law with this man. He could have brought out, you know, text after text, verse after verse, but Jesus refuses to play the intellectual game. Wouldn't it be so interesting if we in our life, when we were asked a challenging question, did what Jesus did and it's coming next versus refusing to play the intellectual games? Because so often we get tied into the intellectual games. I remember, um, and we get tied into a lot of these issues in life, whether it's creation and how it happened, or, and there's, there's thousands of issues that we can get tied into to play the intellectual games. I remember one of my buddies and I were sitting around talking at one point, and we were talking about the creation of the world seven days. Was it seven days? Was it seven years? Was, it, was each year a thousand days? Was it, uh, was it a millennia for each year in the Bible? And, and, and you know, we, we got to this conversation, and we thought to ourselves, do you really think that two dudes sitting on a bench in Fort Lauderdale are going to be able to figure out what people have been debating for millennia? Why are we sitting around talking about this, right? We just need, don't need to be playing the intellectual games. Jesus chose not to, but in response to this man, Jesus did something. Jesus did what he did a lot of times, and it proved a powerful, powerful point when he did it. Jesus tells a story. Red text, right? Really cool. Jesus told a story. Now, it's important for us as we dive into this story to understand something. It's important for us to understand that the story that we are about to tell was not true, right? The story that Jesus told was not true. So many people confuse this and think that the story that Jesus told was true and actually happened, just so we're all aware and on the same page. The story that we are about to tell is a parable, meaning that it was fiction. There's a lot of confusion when people read the Bible versus what actually happened and what didn't happen. And by the way, just because it didn't actually happen doesn't mean it's not true. We believe it to be fully true. It just means that it didn't actually happen. So when the man asked, hey, Jesus, who's, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Imagine a road from city to city, dirt road of the time. And this man who was walking down this road was indeed a Jewish man, right? A Jewish man who was kind of like the culture of the time that Jesus was speaking into. A Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So basically, this guy on the side of the road was mugged and robbed and abused and beaten and left for a bloody pulp. One of the things that you may not know about me was that I spent about 15 years in kids' ministry um, in local churches before they gave me a microphone and allowed me to grace this stage, right? And so just because I've told this story a ton of times in kids' ministry and I've done it with actors, right, I proposed to the leadership of the downtown Harbor Church that perhaps to illustrate this scene, we would bring up some actors and we could reenact some WWE-style moves on this stage. They denied the request, unfortunately. So the man is there half dead, okay? And so he's been beaten and left to a bloody pulp. There's a lot of people in this crowd who could perform some of those WWE moves. I'm just saying, okay? But he's left there half dead, beaten to a bloody pulp. And sure enough people began to notice this man, and people began to walk by. Scripture goes on. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed, on, he passed by on the other side. Someone who would have been, quote-unquote, if we look at it in modern terms, employed by a local church. Someone who should have stopped and helped this man. Someone who the Jewish culture would be familiar, familiar with 
actually saw a man lying there in desperate need of help, one of his own kind, and passed on by. Scripture goes on, so too a Levite. A Levite was someone who worked in the Jewish temple. A Levite was like a temple assistant. And so a Levite would have been very familiar with the law. A Levite should have known the law front and back, right? So a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And a Levite, someone who should have actually stopped and helped, did not. Well, let me tell you about the next person to walk by. But first, let me tell you a little bit about their culture. See, another race during this period of time that the scripture describes are Samaritans, right? Samaritans were actually, you know, the scripture says about Samaritans that the Samaritans and the Jewish people were actually enemies of each other. And they were actually considered to be, their culture was considered to be ceremonially unclean, which means the Jewish or the Samaritans were not even allowed to step foot in the Jewish temple. So the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies, right? The scripture tells us. Almost like the Capulets and the Montagues, if you're a Shakespeare lover, right? These families that will never get along, cultures that will never get along, they're not supposed to get along. But as this Jewish man was lying there, left for dead, beaten to a bloody pulp, Jesus actually begins to wrap this part of the story. And he says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. And bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. People who were looking for an intellectual debate just got schooled with basically a children's story. And all of a sudden, in this moment, I imagine Jesus is now holding court as he's telling this story. And I just imagine Jesus looking around. And after he holds court, he asks one more question. And here's the question right back at the religious scholar who asked him about this initially. And this is what he said. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Jesus did nothing but tell a story. But he spoke with a powerful, powerful truth. And I can only imagine, like a scolded dog, by the way, and Jesus did no scolding. Jesus did not correct this man in any way. He just told a story. Like a scolded dog and Jesus did no scolding, the man replies... The one who had mercy on him. That's who was a neighbor to this man. The one who showed him mercy. Not the religious scholars of the time. Not the religious institution of the time who should have stopped and helped. Right? And you know what Jesus said to him at that point? This is so key. Go and do likewise. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus, how do I follow after you? What do I do? Jesus said, look at this story. Here's here's what you do. Go and do likewise. And do you know what this was to the man? This was a theological put down. 
this was a disappointment. This man was looking for a debate. This man was looking for a fight. This man was looking to go toe to toe. And Jesus basically brought out a story and told this man a story. That's like if you're talking to like a politician or a historian and you're trying to get history of our country and you're looking for a lecture or you're talking to a financial analyst or a financial expert and you want to get the ins and the outs of today's market. This is like sitting down with them and then pulling out Mary had a little lamb. And the point, because of that book, is more powerful than anything they could have ever told you. And Jesus said, hey, you want to follow after me? You want to inherit eternal life? This is what you do. It's this simple. And I just believe there's some things that we can take away from this story. I just believe there's some things in this story that we can take away from it that maybe we've never looked at before, maybe we've never seen before. Because when we talk about loving our neighbor, and we talk about giving ourselves to those who are different than us, the same as us, close to us, whatever it is, there's some things that are on the line, right? See, because I just believe this, love for one's neighbor takes something. It costs something. Because a lot of times we confuse what loving our neighbor as ourself is, and we just think that, hey... We're going to be there and support them emotionally. We're actually going to just give somebody a couple bucks on the side of the road. Or we may give, maybe monetarily, and hope that someone else has to deal with it. Do you know what loving your neighbor takes? This story was an example of it. Loving your neighbor takes risk. Loving your neighbor is not easy. That Samaritan man, because how they were enemies with the Jewish people, he could have easily been put to death because of what he did and reached out to a different culture. He risked his own life to reach out to someone else in need. Loving your neighbor takes risk. Loving your money or loving your neighbor takes money. The scripture tells us that he actually put out money out of his own pocket, put this man up in an inn and said to the innkeeper, hey, if he's got more expenses, in, I got to go, I got to bail for a couple of days, I got stuff to take care of, I'll be back. If he's got more expenses, I'll take care of him. Loving your neighbor takes money. Loving your neighbor is not just about sitting by and letting someone else do it. You may have to reach into your back pocket every now and then. And loving your neighbor also takes something. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. The scripture doesn't talk about how long these events were. Jesus doesn't talk about how long these events took. But I'll tell you this. I just believe at the end of the day that these events actually take a little time. And that it takes time to do this. And when you invest in someone else's life, it's not easy. It's risk. It's dollars. It's time. It does take all those things. So let's go back to the question that the man asked Jesus. Hey, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Jesus, who's my neighbor? And a lot of times, we think we have an answer for this question. Those of us in this room, those of us listening online, we think we have an answer for this question. Person who lives next door, person on my street, family members, spouse, coworkers, the people we don't like, right? There's, there's a lot of people who we go, yeah, well, we're, we're going to toss them into the category of being my neighbors. Some people just say everyone. Let me narrow it down for a second. And I want everybody to zone in right here. Don't miss this. This is so key. Who's my neighbor? Anyone in need of help. Anyone in need of help. Think about this for a second in your own mind. Who in your life today, right now, needs help? And maybe somebody doesn't jump right out at you, but I guarantee you if you think long enough and you think hard enough that somebody might need help. 
That's your neighbor. Even, don't miss this, so key, right? Because a lot of times we just go, oh, it's just the people who I know and who I like and who I interact with on a day-to-day basis. Here's the deal. Someone who needs help might not just be your friend. Someone who needs help might just even be an enemy. Someone who's wronged you. Someone who just desperately might be reaching out and you're the person who God is inspiring to lend that hand just like this man who walked on by and saw the Jewish man beaten and broken and helped him. So I'm going to attempt to put a big bow on this message real quick. I told you about the energy earlier. It's about to come, so just buckle up, okay? So let's talk about two people. Let's talk about two people in this message today and in the scripture. First of all, let's talk about the man who asked the question. You want to know what I love so much about this man who asked the question? Is that he challenged Jesus and opposite of what most Christians do, do you want to know what Jesus said? Jesus told him a story. He didn't automatically go to, I'm going to convert this man to Christianity at this moment, which many of us have been trained to do. Someone who you know, we talked about how to bring others in the journey with us to follow after Jesus today. Someone who you know, right? And you're like, man, I know they're not a follower of Jesus. I might want to bring them along. Our kind of of DNA has been trained to go, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me have you pray the prayer. Let me bring you to church. And in some churches, let me bring you to the front of the room so that it can be official, right? Jesus doesn't do any of that. And by the way, I'm not saying that any of that is wrong or not valid or not true. It is. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. You know what Jesus does to the man who challenges him and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to follow after you? Jesus tells him a story. And then after the story's over, do you want to know what Jesus does? He lets him go. He doesn't, you know, hold his head in a trough and say, you do this or else. He lets him go because maybe it wasn't the right time. I don't know what the story is there, but a lot of us are obsessed with converting those around us. And that's a good obsession. That's not a bad obsession. But I just don't see in the scripture Jesus actually doing that over and over again and not allowing the Holy Spirit his time to work. It's not always the right time. And in this man's life, it wasn't the right time. And Jesus said, go and do that. That's how you inherit eternal life. That's how you follow after me. Let's talk about a second person in this story. So powerful. It's the Samaritan. The Samaritan. The man who risked it all to walk on by and help a man who was in need. Interestingly enough, I'm going to close the message with what I actually believe this means and why he did this and what this means for us as followers of Jesus if we are Christians in the room. I just believe that Jesus told this story because he was sick and tired of the religious institution of the time in 2019, let's call it the local church, being hypocritical and actually not doing what they said they were going to do. John talked last week about a holy huddle of people just getting together, yet there's people suffering and dying and hurting, and what are we going to do about it? The Samaritan was a prime, ripe example of that right in front of our face. So each week, we said we were going to ask a question, and we were going to ask this question. How do we follow Jesus' lead? Don't miss the lowercase letters here. That's an important thing for us to document, right? How do we follow Jesus' lead? In fact, at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week, we put on the screen this word. And I think for me, at least in this week, they just merge together, right? It's what's the practical? How do we hear a message on a Sunday and then put it directly into practice on Monday? 
What do we glean from this as we follow after Jesus? What do we glean? And, and by the way, gang, if there's ever a time to zone in, if there's ever a time to think about the actual point of this, it's right now. So zone in, don't miss this, right? Here's just what I just want you to know. As we explore and determine the practical of what we do with this, there's a couple of things that I think we just need to understand. Number one is this. We need to care about people before you care about commandments. Ooh. Did he say that? Yes, I did. And let me tell you why. This does not negate the commandments. This does not mean that they're not relevant or valid or you should live your life by them. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying this. 2,000 years ago, the Savior of the world walked the earth and said to a group of people who were obsessed with the commandments that you've become so obsessed with the commandments that you forgot to look around at the people who were so desperately needing your attention, who were dying right where they were at. So Jesus, I believe, leans into us and says, I understand the commandments matter, but people matter more. I believe he's looking at us and saying this. Yes, your beliefs matter. They are important. They are valid. They are true. Yes, your beliefs matter. But oh boy, people matter more. And don't you ever forget that day in and day out. I believe that when we become so obsessed with our beliefs and so obsessed with living a certain way, not that there's anything wrong with that, to cue a Seinfeld line, right? When we, when we live our you know, lives a certain way, that's a good thing. But we do it at the neglect in the sake of those who most desperately need our help. And in fact, there are some who are a part of the local church, might be listening online, people who've been at our 9 a.m. service today, and I said this, and I'm going to say it again. You can have your beliefs. If your beliefs have ever caused you to treat someone the wrong way, then something is wrong with your beliefs. Because Jesus has never, ever, ever taught us, required us, commanded us to do that. We just have to understand that. And we have to get that. We need to care about people more than we care about commandments. And then what about this? There's only two practicals today. What if we just did something like this every now and then? And I'm going to talk to you about why. What if we became friends with those who were different than you? Boy, are we scared of what's different, right? Boy, are Christians scared of what's different, right? If you think I'm wrong, just look around. And I understand different is interesting and awkward, and we got to, you know, get our feet wet there. I get it, all right? But so often what we do is we go, I don't want anything different. I just want things the same. Now, at Downtown Harbor Church, we never talk about politics from this stage. It's not something we do. You want to have that debate, do it outside. Not interested in here. But I'll tell you this. And again, I said when I started, to this, when I started this message that I was talking to Christians in the room today. I have heard more Christians throughout my history in the local church, specifically in the last number of years, alienate and put off the other side of the aisle politically than anything I've ever seen in my life. In fact, I have seen Republicans say about Democrats and Democrats say about Republicans and all of them say about the Green Party, whoever they are, and the independents, right? I've, I've heard, right? I've heard, right? I, I love that that one got a laugh. That was just a one-off, right? I, but here's what I've heard. What have I heard? From Christians. Man, wouldn't it be great if we could just ship the people who don't think like us or believe like us somewhere else? That way we could just be at peace. 
I had to almost take, when I take my glasses off, you know I get fired up, right? I only do that like really like if I'm ever playing blackjack and I've lost like 18 hands in a row. Okay, I'm just kidding. But hey, what's what I'm saying? But I actually took my glasses off and I said, that's an interesting view. Except it's at the exact opposite of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that does not matter or mean anything because Jesus didn't care about any of that. The only thing he cared about and talked about was when at the end of the day, it all came down to it. It was picking somebody up who needed help, loving your neighbor as yourself, standing by someone who was in need, never leaving their side, understanding that you may have to dry a tear or hold a hand or help someone through a time that they would never hopefully experience again. That's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. That's what the truth is all about. Not these commandments that's what's so true and we lose it but at the end of this don't miss this This is the key do you want to know why I believe he told this story going back to the very front end of the message because I just believe if you want to bring others alongside of you in this journey if you want others to become a follower of Jesus and you want others to become a Christian then eventually you better care about them more than you care about them following the commandments. Because as you build relationship with them, as you engage with them and become friends and help people through life, do you want to know what happens when someone goes through a hard time and you lift them up? When someone's been beat up on the side of the road and you help them get better? When someone is there for you and you experience that, even if they're not a follower of Jesus, do you want to know what most of the time happens at the end of the day? Might be at the end of their life, might be at the end of a bad time. You want to know what they say? Why'd you do that? Why were you there for me like the way that you were? Silver platter. My answer would be because Jesus Christ long ago changed my life. And I have no option but to be there for those around me. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've gone through. So therefore, because Jesus changed my heart and my life, I will always give of myself to you. How did Jesus change your life? I'm glad you asked. Relationship leads to discipleship. Discipleship is this idea that you would follow after someone in their teachings, Jesus being the center of who we teach about here. And if we think that in any way, shape, or form, some concert, some show, some program is the best way to win people, we are mistaken. Do you want to know where it lies? Right here. And it starts by putting out your hand and reaching down to somebody who's been beat up and broken along the side of the road and saying, I will stand by you no matter what. You want to follow after Jesus? As he says, follow me. There you go. Watch his kingdom grow. Watch people's lives be changed. Watch this community be different time and time again. Let me pray. Father, we love you for who you are. God, go before us. Help us to process this. Help us to understand this. Help us to dissect this. Help us to engage with this, Lord. Jesus, there are people all around us who are hurting, who don't know you, who we want to know you. Help us rather than with a commandment, go to them with an open hand to say, come, I'll never leave you. I will be by your side. Those we know, those we don't know, those, are who, those who are our enemies so that we can somewhere along the way help people at the, end of the day, at the end of the day know who you are more. May you be glorified. Jesus, will be so quick to give you all the glory. We love you. 
We thank you and we praise you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.